Hello and welcome to the Hippocampus podcast, a place where we discuss the strategies that help optimise learning. So join us for some grassroots conversations where we share some practical tips and insights that might just make your learning journey a little easier. In this episode, we met with Dr. Jared Cooney-Horvath, an educational neuroscientist and brain expert. He answered our questions about the brain in learning and took us on a real deep dive into the mechanisms of memory. But he also discussed some practical ways in which we can exploit this understanding to optimise how we learn and remember. In fact, we had such a great discussion with Jared that we are releasing this episode in two parts. So we'll begin with the first. Uh, welcome back and hello everybody. Hello. Hi. Hiya. Hello. So we are really excited to have uh, our special guest, Dr. Jared Cooney-Horvath, uh, who joins us from Melbourne in Australia. Uh, Dr. Cooney-Horvath is a neuroscientist, uh, educator and brain expert. He has taught and conducted research at Harvard University, Harvard Medical School, and is currently working at the University of Melbourne. Uh, His work focuses on translating what is understood about the brain and the mind to education and how we can use these insights practically to improve learning. He is the director of the Science of Learning group, uh, a group that's been translating research findings uh, from the laboratory to the realities of the learning environment. Uh, He's also director of Learning Made Easy, uh, LME Global, uh, which is an online platform with a variety of courses aimed at every level of learner um, and an educator and is the author of one of my favourite books, um, The Stop Talking, Start Influencing, which we'll speak a little more to (laughs) when we uh, come to our recommendations section. So, Jared, welcome. It is an absolute pleasure to have you join us. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing good, and I I like your taste in books. I agree. That is a wonderful book. It's the book I always wanted to read, so I just wrote it myself. (laughs) So could you tell us a little bit first then about your professional journey into educational neuroscience and what in particular drew you to that field? Yeah, absolutely. So I was a teacher originally. So I actually started in the classroom. Um, But back when I was teaching, that's when the neuroscience stuff started to kind of become popular. So it was the decade of the brain back in the 90s. And and everyone's like, oh, this is crazy and cool. So I thought, all right, if I go solve the brain, then that'll definitely make me a better teacher, right? And that was at least my idea. And so I just thought I'd spend a couple, two, three years at uni figuring out the stuff, come back and then kind of dissolve it for everyone else and say, here's the good stuff. But as you guys probably know, well, you will learn eventually. University is like a black hole. Once you get in, you really can't get out. So it's been 15, God, over 15 years now I've been stuck at university. And I still do most of my work, thank goodness, is I get to still work with students and teachers to say, here's what this means. Here's the stuff you can use. Here's the stuff you can't. Um, And so I I still get to work with teachers, but I still have the dream, maybe in the next five, 10 years, finally stepping away from uni and going back to the classroom and just working with one group of students per year, really getting to know them and really going deep with them. I say that's my dream, but it might not. You (laughs) you might get stuck. Just keep doing more research. And all of a sudden it's 10 years later and you're still at university. (laughs) I hope you guys are enjoying it because really it's, it's hard to get out of there. Once you, once you get the groove of uni, you get stuck. (laughs) In in a lot of your, your work, you frame 
thinking about the brain as working a bit like a, a sort of predictor and a, and a coder. Could yeah. you explain a little bit more about that and how we actually can relate that thinking to, to our, to learning? Yeah. So it's, it's, we have in neuroscience, we're going to call it our schemata, but the easiest way to understand it is we all have stories for the world. So when we're in a certain context, we can activate the story that, Oh, okay. I'm around the dinner table. Here's how I'm supposed to act. Oh, I'm with my family. Here's what we do. Those stories really heavily dictate what you perceive in the world because the brain for the most part sits in what I tend to call a prediction mode. It just runs the stories you've already built and it says, Oh, this is close enough to this story you've already had. Let's just use that story to color all of your perception. And in a way, a lot of people say, well, that kind of prediction thing is, is kind of scary, but really that's how the brain saves energy. So if you kind of pull back, you go, all right, the human brain uses 25% of all the energy in your body, even when you're not doing anything. So when you're vegging out watching Netflix, a quarter of all the energy in your body gets sucked up here. This thing is an absolute tank. In order to learn something new, to take in new information, to change your understanding about the world, you need a secondary jolt of energy. You, you need more than the baseline 25% it's getting. And for the most part, <laughs> that doesn't come from your blood anymore. Now your brain has to tap, tap into a secondary energy source. But when it does, you get this mass influx of activity. And that's what I then call coder mode, is when your brain is in that secondary mode where it's tapping into new juice, at that moment, you have the ability to do whatever you want to do. You can change your old stories. You can build a new story. You can add something to an old story. You can tweak something. The problem is you've only got a finite amount of that secondary energy source per day. And we, we tend to, it depends on how much sleep you get the night before. Um, but if we're correct in what we think that energy source is, you only have about anywhere between 30 minutes and four hours a day where you can be in that active coding mode. So that's why we live in prediction. We just don't have the juice to keep doing it. So here's what happens. So you're living in the world. You build a story about how a situation should be. That story proves effective enough. So you end up locking that story down. And now you just live in the prediction. And that story becomes your reality until you kick yourself out of it back in a coder mode where you can change it. So bringing it back to learning now, we start to see this. This, I think, is the foundation of pretty much everything. A lot of people talk about your learning story. What is your learning story? Who are you as a learner? And now we're starting to see the mechanisms by which that story will dictate what impact your learning, your practice has on you. If you have a story that says, oh, I'm going to bomb this test, watch when all that material comes into your brain. And as soon as you find your first struggle, that story goes, see, I told you. And all of a sudden you start to kind of flood around and you're like, oh, this sucks. And I was out of it. You have a story that says, oh, I'm going to nail this test. You get to that first struggle point. You go, ooh, didn't expect a struggle. That's all right. I'm still going to kick its butt. And you go on to the next thing. So that story kind of dictates how you start to interpret and perceive all the learning that's going on around you. So if, if, if I can only teach one thing to people, as much as I, I, I kind of, I, I feel like it's a bit of a cop-out, but it, it's there is get your learning story straight. If you have the wrong story going into any learning situation, you've just made it two, three, four, five times nearly impossible for yourself to actually succeed in that situation. And it's all because the brain lives in that story. It lives in its prediction. You don't have the energy to live outside of it. So if you're stuck in a prediction, you might as well make it a really good one. And then when you start practicing, watch as that stuff really starts to get stuck with you.
I think what's really interesting is like you talk about the uh, the predictor mode and how we live in this predictor mode because that's like the default setting and that there's no other way around it and the coder mode is so energy sort of intense and as a result you know the story that you tell yourself is so important because that's the, the sort of predictive world you live in I guess as medical students how do you think that's sort of um, relevant for us in, in the sense that we have like exams we have series of tests and if students perhaps don't do so well in the, in the test are they sort of likely to take uh, sort of create a story in their head and uh, have a sort of negative aspect and approach to learning which could influence the future oh. so i think you guys have it you have a, a, a two-pronged way that you've got to approach it one is the the limit is the hard limit to learning that you can do in any one day you guys i, I can't think of I, I, maybe it's comparable to the law, but honestly, the, the people I know who did law, I don't think work as hard as medical students do. <laughs> Just the sheer volume of stuff you guys have to learn is insane. And so a lot of people are stuck trying to cram in way too much every day and they can't. So what starts, and you guys have probably felt this, like you go through a cram yeah. session yeah. and you're killing it, you're killing it. And then when you hit like three hours or four hours, you hit this one when, and at that moment, you're just struggling. <laughs> That's that hard limit. The coder can only be on so mm. long to take in new information and allow you to adapt. So I think from one angle, you have to be very cognizant of your limits and know that when you hit it, it might suck, but you're done for the day. Pack mm. it up, go to sleep, consolidate that night, come back the next day. You're going to learn more if you pack it in after three hours than if you try and cram in an extra three and then tomorrow, because you didn't get enough sleep that night, now you've run out of extra juice for the next, it just compounds. So as much as it sucks, you've got to stop studying at some point, <laughs> which is actually a good thing. But then, so now swing it back is, is, okay, so now we've got this long-term progression and we're building a story as we're going through this, where we're succeeding, we're failing, we're struggling, we're good. The story you want to be thinking about in terms long-term during med school is to how do you build a story that allows you to embrace that failure? You're gonna screw up. There is no chance in God's green earth you don't screw up. And if you don't, if somehow you make it through med school without screwing up, I would not come to your clinic because <laughs> you're gonna screw up at some time. And I'd rather you do it at school than when you're performing open heart surgery on me. Like, let's get our failure in the right spot. <laughs> so a lot of people, especially, in, in med school, you guys are, you're high achievers, you're, you're, you're alpha thinkers, and any failure sucks. But we've got to learn to rebuild that story to go, yep, when I fail, it's, it's the next learning situation. The story isn't, well, that's it, I'm useless, I'm not good. The story is, well, sweet, I just found a spot that I'm not strong at. So let, now I know where to focus my new time and energy. At the end of the day, you're all going to graduate. You're all going to make it. There is no way, if this is what you want, there's no way you're not going to get it. So now you get to see what you're going through now. We have learning modes and we have performance modes. And a lot of people build stories based on performance. If I fail a test, that's it, I'm out. If I fail this, oh, I suck. Oh. If you can view everything you're doing for the next chunk of your life as learning mode and recognize that no. This isn't a performance. This isn't game seven of the NBA finals and you'll never have another shot. You will always have another shot. So cool. Fail, 
use that as your struggle point to push forward and then use that to keep building your story. And by the end, failure just becomes part and parcel. <laughs> it's, you know, you've reached a good level of learning when you submit a paper to a journal and it's rejected and you genuinely don't care. Or when you take a test and as you're taking it, you're like, Ooh, I'm so underprepared for this. And you genuinely don't care. You're like, that is so my fault. And you, you get your F and you're like, yep, saw that one coming. That's all right. Back to the grind with me. So you kind of run that show. So that's what, so the, the big story is going to be that error story. How do you deal with the struggles with the failures? And can you build a story that says that's just the next step of learning for me? Yeah. I think that's so helpful for like medical students to, like you said, build a story that embraces failure because it's an ongoing process. And I think, you know, our listeners really appreciate that. And I remember, I remember where, how I felt when I was at your guys' level, I never made it through. That's how I know you can do it. I was, I just chose to step away into a PhD instead of an MD. If you guys, wherever you want to go, you're not going to, you're not going to fail out. You're not going to drop. This isn't high school anymore. You're in. And if you want to be in for the long haul, you're in for the long haul. So now play comfortably in there. Don't push yourself too hard. Don't stress too much. It's all going to happen in the end. Because one day you're going to get to my age and you're going to look back and go, what the hell was I ever worried about? <laughs> <laughs> Life is long. You got plenty of time to do everything. <laughs> So you mentioned the idea about um, kind of a maximum time that you could be deeply focused in a day and for studying. Did, I think, did you say uh, like maybe a few hours? Yeah, you'd say anywhere between say 30 minutes and maybe four hours max that your coder can be on. So if you're, if you're learning new material and you're trying to update a story, you'd say, yeah, three to four hours is kind of what you're looking at. The, what I will say is there's a little caveat to that is if you're practicing something that you're already versed in, then you don't need that secondary energy source. So this is where I'd say like, if, you, if you're gonna do a six hour study session, only three hours of that might be taking in new information. The other three you can keep going so long as you're just, I'm just gonna keep drilling and locking down this skill over here that I already have, I'm just gonna make it better. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, that's great advice because I was thinking, I was gonna ask, how can you maximize that, you know, if you have to study, if you've got an, uh, a test or an exam in a few weeks and you think you need to get the most out of, out of your days, a great piece of advice would be learn new things for a certain amount of your study time and then maybe test and consolidate things that you've, you've learned previously. And then you could study for a, a longer time. Just make sure you're not uh, taking in new information for all of that time. Boom. And you've, and you've got a good point there too. As I, so let's say you've got a six hour window. One of the smartest things you can do is set your goals for that session first. Um, what tends to happen is if people don't have a very clear sense, so we call them proximal goals. What are your goals for today for studying? When people don't have a really clear sense of what it is they're going to do, they end up wasting 20 to 30 minutes just flitting, yeah. building, uh, okay, maybe I should do this. Oh no, that doesn't feel good. Maybe I should do this. If in advance, you just take five minutes and say, this is what I'm doing this week. On Friday, I'm studying this. Saturday, I'm doing this. Sunday, I'm doing this. And then like you said, if you can build it out. So if it's a five hour session, say, God forbid. Oh, I hate, I hope you don't ever have to do one of those <laughs> or too often. Try not to load one and then the other. So you get, when your coder goes on, when your brain enters into active learning mode, you get diminishing returns really quickly. So um, if you study the same thing, so let's say you're studying a list of words for say 30 minutes versus 60 minutes. We tend to think that, oh, I'm gonna learn those words 
twice as good. I've studied twice as long at 60 minutes. I'm going to do 100% better. Turns out you really only tend to do about 9 to 30% better. You get this really strong diminishing return where after about 20, 30 minutes of being in active learning mode, it starts to just be less and less and less efficient. So if you're going to break it up, start breaking it up or you go, cool, I'm going to do 25, 30 minutes of new learning. Then I'm going to switch over into some drills. Then I'm going to come back for some learning. Then I'm going to switch over into some practice problems over here. Then I'm going to quiz myself, then back for some new learning. You just keep chunking it into about these 25 minute windows where you're on and off. And that way you should be able to avoid that kind of dip you start to get at 30 minutes where the brain's like, are you still going? Okay. <laughs> so that's, I, so organize it and then just think, yeah, in these kind of chunks is not a bad idea to kind of start thinking about it. Yeah. I think that's important for students to know as well, Jared, because traditionally we have this idea fed into our heads that we should be continuously at the desk studying for hours and hours and hours. And when you don't, you sort of are looked at as you're not studying properly. So I think having yeah. someone tell you that actually it's okay if it's just a burst of 25 minutes, that's fine. But if it's quality, then that's what, that's what matters. And you'll find that that's, that's the quality. It's one of the, I don't know that you guys would do it at your level. I think you're probably pretty smooth at this, but a lot of people, when they study, they start to flit around as well. So yeah. I guess the new thing is media multitasking is now the big thing where it's, I'm going to study, but I'm also just going to check my Twitter feed. I'm going to do this, that, and the other. <laughs> and hands down, the single worst thing you could possibly do when you study is multitask. Yeah. If, you had to have, if you had to have one hard law of, of do not do this, it's that. It's multitasking. Because when you start moving your attention around, that just wreaks havoc with your learning and with your coder and stuff. So give me a kid who needs to study for five hours a night. I tend to tell that kid, my guess is you're studying wrong. I don't know any human being should ever need to study anything that much. But if I come and watch you, I'm guessing it's not five hours of pure study. I'm guessing it's you're either cramming for an exam and you didn't do any work for the last month or you're flitting. You're spending five hours and really of that time, you're only spending two and a half studying. The other two and a half is nothingness. And that's actually harming the other two and a half. So yeah, a good 30 minute jaunt, that's one of the better things you could do. Yeah. I remember even in school, what you're saying, I used to study for like five, six hours, maybe seven through the whole evening. Um, yeah. And it wasn't quality studying at all. It was just, it was just rote learning. Now I spend a good yeah. two hours and it's, it's quality that lasts me for, I don't know how long it's insane. The difference that I've seen. So just play, play, play the game right by the rules. It was exactly are in there and watch as things start to soar. And you're like, Oh, cool. That's so how I felt my brother grew up when we grew up. I was the, the kid who was doing 30 minutes of homework a night and he was doing like all nighters every night. <laughs> it's like, well, how do you do it? <laughs> he his room and you realize he's got like 10 magazines open and he's got his, oh. his uh, Sega master system on. And I'm like, that's why just focus for 30 minutes. And you'll be done. You can play video games all night, brother. I think picking up on even like you said, your brother plays video games. I think with me, with my revision, I try and do two hour blocks and I have like a, half an hour to an hour break and have a reward, which is my reward time. And I feel like that motivates me to like, um, actually enjoy my revision. Well, if it's something I don't like, for example, I really don't like pharmacology. <laughs> I'm like, right at 11 AM, I'm gonna, I don't know, do some painting. Cause I'm trying to get into watercolor painting again. So that's yeah. like a reward for me because I'm, um, if I'm too stressed out and I feel like I need to use it the whole day, at least I'm enjoying myself whilst trying to revive and also, I'm doing things that I enjoy. So it kind of calms my brain down in a way. And I was just wondering, how's your brain affected in terms of um, rewards? Do you, 
fruits of the actions that we're doing in terms of results and things like that? That's a huge question, but it's, it's good. So you can, I, I think what you're doing is no, I love it. It's totally <laughs> fine. Um, there's an entire field of positive psychology that's trying to a- answer that question. There's a, so many unknowns up in the air, yeah. but I think what you're doing is brilliant in that if there is something that you don't find intrinsically motivating, then you need to find a way to extrinsically motivate yourself yeah, to do it. Exactly. So if, if pharmacology is not your thing, then cool. You've got a, you've got a game yourself and say, all right, I'm going to give myself a watercolor. You are yeah. a much cooler person. <laughs> <laughs> Only thing going through my head is I'm going to allow myself a beer. If I, if I do two hours, I get one beer. Congratulations. Four hours. Does that mean two? Yes. All right. I'm going four. But what you, what you can start to do is, yeah, is you're essentially, it's, it's going to sound bad, but it's just like training rats in a maze. You're conditioning and rewarding yourself. You're building a value um, um, calculation in your brain that yes, these two hours are going to be worth this. The problem is, is once you get into that groove, you've got to kind of stick with that groove that yeah. you've always got to kind of give yourself a gift. Otherwise, you're going to turn yourself off and go, well, I don't want to do anything anymore. Yeah. So it's, I think what you're doing is you're gaming the system right. But ideally, what will happen is you'll start to become more and more intrinsically motivated. Once you find your niche, and it's probably not going to be pharmacology. It might be, I don't not know, podiatry. Maybe you love feet. It's a good job. You're going to find it and all of a sudden that's going to be the thing where you don't need to treat yourself. In fact, yeah. you're, you're saying to yourself, I just want to kind of just give me 30 more minutes of this. Yeah, I, I, I just want to keep studying for another hour. And that's when you know you've hit your sweet spot, that intrinsic just drive spot. You know what's interesting with the, with the reward stuff? I don't know. Where, now, I'm, I'm going to have to do some thinking on this. Once you start rewarding yourself, rewards like all things start to shift before the goal into and that's where we get habits from so any habit starts with a reward after so you pull the slot machine you get your hit of dopamine there's your reward congrats over time any reward starts to preempt the action so i start to get my hit of dopamine before i even pull the slot machine just because i know it's it's coming so would it be possible to if you rewarded yourself enough for studying something like pharmacology to get the hit of dopamine, the rush, before you even study and then become addicted to doing something that you don't like to do. I don't know, I'm, I'm just thinking out loud. This, oh, is, this is how that. new ideas come up. <laughs> I, think, I think I only get the hit of dopamine when I'm like, right, I'm gonna learn these neuropharmacology drugs. And I go into it, I know maybe it only happens once you've learned it once, I think. Cause I know, okay, yeah. I've, I've got my first layer of basic revision, general understanding. And then um, I only get excited because I'm like, well, well, at least I've done it once. Now I need to see if I can go up another level. So yeah. I don't know. I think because pharmacology is, for me is just really dry. So I have to start off with, because I, I, I timetable my stuff on my phone. So I can see when I've done like, do some watercolor. Like I actually write it in so I can yeah. see in my day what I've achieved. And I think I did more watercoloring at the beginning of revision and less towards the end because I was just getting into the groove of everything. So it wasn't yeah. the same every day. Um, but I do think, like you said, the dose of, like the release of dopamine, I think it comes as you get more confident. Like pharmacology, and there's so many topics in medicine, we've got so much to do that it, I think it's impossible to say that, you know, I'm intrinsically motivated by absolutely every range of topics that we have to study. And like, yeah. um, for me, I think that's where it comes back to, like Jared was saying earlier, the story you tell yourself, because that, that's what really drives me in terms of, 
I, I tell myself I want to be this person who is able to, um, you know, be a good person in the world to solve problems. And I have this vision of myself. And I think that's when I look down at pharmacology and I see, you know, how, how does this drug interact? And it's not very motivating, but I know that solving that problem and understanding that concept will allow me to be this person that I want to be. And, uh, and I think that in that, that story is so vital to sort of developing your own motivations to do things. And that's what really helps me get through stuff that otherwise on the surface of it, isn't that fun. That's Britain. No, I, I, you're spot on is, is I, growing up every kid says oh i'm bored with this i'm bored with that i'm bored during the summer once you get to adulthood <laughs> you lose boredom I, I hopefully i so far as i know no i i don't know any adults myself that get bored anymore at least not like we used to during summer and the question is why do you stop getting bored and it's because you you get an identity you get a dream you get a passion you get a goal and once you have that everything starts to fit into that goal regardless of how relevant it might look. So when you're teaching elementary schoolers and middle school kids and secondary kids, there's the big movement in high school is, is, um, is differentiation. How do I get kids excited about this topic? How do I show them that it's so exciting? And the joke is when you work with adults, you don't have to do anything. Everything is exciting to an adult because we have a passion and anything you're about to teach me, I know I'm going to be able to somehow work into mine. So I don't give a rat's patootie about cars. I don't know the first thing about them. But I promise you, if someone started teaching me about it, I'd get interested because my thought wouldn't be, oh, I'm going to get good at cars. My thought would be, how is that going to help me figure out the brain more? There's going to be something in here, a metaphor that I've never thought of before. There's going to be, and that's that passion. So that's what I love is if you've got a goal, if you've got a vision for who you want to be, what you want to achieve, then that's a the, that story is a, goes a great way to, towards helping you kind of get through those rough patches of, I don't quite get the relevance yet, but I know there's going to be something here at some point. So I'm fighting through it. So in terms of the, the building up the stories that obviously have to yeah. be in our brains to inform our predictor, presumably that's the, the memories that, that, that we're creating uh, as we sort of go through life and go through our educational experiences. Thinking about memories how are kind of memory pathways formed? Like we've, we've read a little bit about there are different types of memories, like semantic memories and episodic memories. Yeah. But ha what is that kind of mechanism of building up that, that, that story that informs our, our uh, predictor? I would, love, I would love to say we, can, we have the mechanisms down pat, but to be fair, if you think about it, we've been, trying to, we've been studying memory for probably 100 years neurologically for about 50. We can't find these suckers. We don't know where they're at. We don't know where they're going. They're not in the cells. They're not between the cells. Our new theory is that they're now outside of your brain in magnetic waves. We got no clue. With that said, so, so anything I'm about to say in terms of mechanisms will likely change in the next two days. Um, <laughs> two days. But we have good, what we can call kind of, I know that's how fast this moves. It, it, kind of these good behavioral patterns that we can see. So, key pattern to memory is access to memory. So if you kind of think of memory in a very simple three-step process, one, information's got to get into your brain, two, it's got to get stuck, three, it's got to come back out. That's as hard as memory is. Get in, get stuck, get out. Each of those stages, you can find different principles to help you kind of do that better. So something like multitasking would be at the input stage. 
something like sleep for consolidation is at the tie down stage. But it turns out the biggest trick for deep memory is at the access stage. It, we, we have a feeling that everything gets into your brain. We have a feeling that most things get stuck in your brain. The reason why memory is so shoddy for most things is simply because you never access them. And if you don't access a memory after enough period of time, we think either A, it disappears, or B, it hibernates, but we don't know where the heck it goes. But so that's why like, you may never have thought about something you did in second grade and then you smell something and all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, that's that second grade party, had that same smell, weird. <laughs> so we think they might still be hiding in there, but we just don't know how to get them. But the more you access a memory, the deeper, easier, more accessible that memory becomes in the future. So you can kind of think about it like uh, radio jingles. We all remember the ones like our favorite little jingles on the radio. Everyone goes, oh, you remember those because you've heard them so many times. You've just put that into your brain so many times. No, you remember those because you sung them so many times. Every time you hum it, you sing along with it, you're yanking that memory out of your brain. And now that memory is getting deeper. This is why you remember your wedding day, even though it's only happened once, but you can't remember what a dollar bill looks like because even though you've seen it a thousand times, because input isn't enough, it's the access where you get the, the deep memory. So you can start to see where this kind of pulls back now when we're talking about study, research, and learning, where a lot of it has to be effort. You have to be the one yanking it out too, too often. And when you first learn something new, it has to be input. I can't learn about Game of Thrones until I watch an episode of Game of Thrones. But at the end of the day, I could watch that same episode 10 times, but I'll learn more if I watch it once and then debate it with my friends the next day and then yeah. talk about it at the water cooler and then write a, a, some fan fiction about me and Khaleesi, <laughs> a neuroscientist and a dragon. It's, it's a good fan fiction. If you're interested, look at my blog, really hot stuff. But, but that's, that's, <laughs> that's where you're getting your deep memories is through the, the use, the access. And, but, I, but I will say this though too, I think an important thing to remember is once you start accessing memories, once you start relying on recall, memories have a very weird tendency to change. Anytime you think of a memory. So let's just imagine memories are files in a filing cabinet. It's not true, but let's just imagine it is. I want you to think about what you ate for breakfast yesterday morning. Right now, what you just did is you went into your filing cabinet, you pulled out that memory from wherever it's stored in your brain, you popped it into what's called your working memory, and now you're thinking about it in this moment. Problem is when you're thinking about a memory, it's gone from your brain. It is now no longer stored in there. And at this moment, we can do anything we want to it. We can change it, we can tweak it, we can ditch it, we can lose it, we can add to it. Once you're done thinking about it, then you have to restore it. But problem is, is when you restore it, it goes back with all your changes. The old memory is dead and all you've got is whatever you've just changed. So for instance, I've got a, a friend who was at an ATM doing his PIN number. He's had the same PIN he said forever. He's typing in his PIN number and a car, he said, crashed right into the building, like two feet away from him, just slammed in. In this moment, he gets shocked. What does he lose after he checks, make sure everything's okay? What can he no longer remember? That PIN number that he had for like 20 years, he <laughs> cannot remember it. Why? Because it's gone. He had accessed it to type it in and something distracted his memory, and now the memory was totally gone. Now you can reconstitute it later, but point being that once it's in there, you can do things to it. So if you're gonna be using recall to deepen your memory, you have every chance of changing your memory and never knowing it. 
So it's always important to have something to bounce that memory against to check its accuracy. So I always say like, if you're going to, you're going to do a study session rather than reading your notes, try and rewrite your notes from memory, try and write out as much as you can. And then don't end there. Then check that against the original notes just to make sure whatever you were ripping out isn't totally haywire. Mm -hmm. The recall gives you the deep memories, but then checking it out, feedback against something real gives you the accurate memories to make sure you're not just thinking something totally weird. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think this whole thing you're talking about access and stuff like, uh, what's coming across a lot in literature and even on YouTube is this idea of active recall space repetition. Um, so are you saying that these kind of ideas are already the same thing? They're all going for the same thing in terms of bingo. So you, the, the retrieval practice, practice testing, all of that is, is hinged exactly like precisely on this access point of memory, the bring up the memory yourself. That's why it's getting deep. So that's the, the entire retrieval practice can be summed up in one thing. Memory is constructive. The more you access it, the deeper it gets. Right. The space has a little interesting aside to it. Okay. So in case for any listeners who don't know, so space practice, when it comes to learning, we have no, no laws. Like in physics, you can get laws. In psychology, you just can't. But the closest we've ever gotten to a learning law is spaced practice, is anything we've ever worked with. From plants, plants learn incredibly well, by the way, in case you didn't know. Plants, animals, bugs, bees, fish, birds, humans, babies. The one pattern that we all show at the neurological, at the behavioral, at the doesn't even matter what level you're, you're looking at, is when you cram a session of learning or study together versus splitting it up into multiple bits, the splitting it up, the spacing it, always leads to significantly better learning and memory always why might this be so in our case what this means is if you cram five hours a night before an exam you'll pass the exam but 48 hours later you'll forget most of what you studied but if you do a little bit of study every night one hour a night for five hours same amount of study same amount of repetition you've just broken it into five nights watch when you pass that test and a year later you still can pass that test you remember as much as you learn the reason for this is twofold. One is exactly like you, you were just saying. It's the recall. It's the memory is constructive. If you study in one night, you only have to bring up that information once. You kind of hold on to it for five hours, and then you restore it. Right. Do it over five nights. You have to bring it up, store it, bring it up, store it. And every time you're doing this, you're just deepening that memory. Even if you're, you don't think you are, you're just getting better and better at it. Right. More importantly, spacing works best. You can do it on small scales, but it works best when you sleep in between each session. And because what's happening is when you sleep, remember information's got to get into your brain, get stuck, come back out. Your memories get stuck when you sleep, when you're dreaming. You don't sleep, your memories don't get stuck in there. So when you space, not only do you get this recall boost, but if you sleep after each study session, you now have this, this consolidation boost where you have five chances to consolidate the same information versus one chance if you only studied it once at night. Does yeah. that kind of make sense? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Because I think just to follow up on, on what you're saying, um, you know, it all makes sense in terms of cementing those memories into your head, you know, putting in that sleep in between and spacing it out. But I always see those methods as just memory, but I never see how that sort of delivers on the idea of making sure you actually learn something and understand it. I always see these yeah. methods as memory formation, as opposed to what do you do for understanding? How do I actually, you know, the depth, 
Yeah, yeah. no, I love it. You're totally spot on. So most memory methods, and that's exactly what you're, you're spot on, they're memory methods, mm-hmm. are really good for what we call surface learning. That's right. getting the information into your brain. When it's now time to go pushing past that to what is actually going on, that's what we call deep learning. This is so that kind of initial first phase of input, of get the information into your brain, get it locked down. That's what we would assume your active learning brain is. When we're talking about your coder, it's about get the information in. Once the information's in, now we think you can do work with it. So when we were talking earlier about breaking your study into new work, old work, new learning, old learning. If you've already got the information in, now you can do your old learning where you can not sap any of your brain's energy and start to go, okay, I've got all these facts. What the hell am I going to do with them? How do they tie together? What's the bigger concept? What debates, what other facts contradict that concept? Now you get to do what we call thinking. The first phase of learning doesn't even require all that much thinking. Deep learning, understanding, that all happens in here. That, that's no more input. It's what are you going to do with all that information you took the time to cram in there? And so that's where you start to move into those strategies like um, essay writing and, and counter debates with friends and uh, try and prove a point, try and make a difference, test your theory, hypothesize, all these deeper forms of learning. Most of the time, I imagine especially during medical school, you're going to be largely in just that front end, that surface level learning. And that's fine. You have to do that if you ever want to go deep in anything. You skip surface learning, there is nothing left for you. But then you get to choose how deep and where do you want to do your thinking past that. And then that's the fun stuff you get to do for 30 minutes in between learning. Where you're like, all right, let me start to concept map this. Let me figure out what the hell, how I think all this fits together. Yeah, because we have that learning pyramid of the whole base of the knowledge is at the base. And then how do you move towards the analytical side of things? And that's something I always struggled with, fitting this idea of application. That's the stumbling block that I face. I'll learn everything, but how do I apply it? And I was just trying to understand in terms of your predictor coder sense, yeah. that where does application feed into all of that? You know? Boom. So you would assume uh, application will require a, slightly a little bit of both. Okay. The problem with application is anytime you apply learning or knowledge, it is st- stupidly contextual. It is ridiculously contextual. So you can't apply. It's not something you can do now. It requires a moment, a scenario. It requires something to say, now, what are you going to do with this? Sure. And the problem is, is once you do something with it, if you move to a different scenario, a different context, you have to do something different with it. So you can never lock down the application stage. You can lock down the knowledge stage, you can by and large lock down the conceptual stage, although you should always try and keep that malleable. But when it comes to app- application, it's exact. All you can do is get your understanding, your memory so deep and your own story about what this information means so deep that when it comes time to apply, you can then free up all your cognitive resources to say, what does this context demand? Who's asking what, what do I need? Now you can bring all those automatic skills on board. But the process of sifting through the context, that will largely require your coder to say, where do I belong? Where does this go? Where does this happen? Now you can bring your automatic skills on board to that. And once you do the same thing in enough context, let's say you're applying your knowledge in your clinic. All of that will become automated. You will have been in the same context so frequently, so often, using the same skills that all of that becomes pure prediction. 
And now you hit a small a snag where if a new context, a new client comes in and he's close enough to an old client, you just start running your prediction and go off the old client. So this is where you see when it comes to diagnosis. So like in radiology, you would assume someone who's been doing radiology for 30 years would be better at reading and diagnosing, say, brain images than a newbie fresh out of college. Totally not true. The newbie right out of college typically performs significantly better. And it's because they're still using enough of their coder in each situation to say, I've got skills locked down. How do I apply it? After 30 years, you've seen so many brain scans, you just run predictions. And when they sneak in a new brain scan that you've never seen before, you don't care. You just run your old context. Sure, I've applied it. I'm good. And you're wrong. So this idea of trying to keep application always fresh, always new, read the context, and then lock down the skills, that frees up the, con the ability to read a context and then just start applying those skills at will. If you take yeah. that Bloom's taxonomy, we can definitely... Yeah. Do a new image of that that shows how I'm, wh yeah. where do we start with the facts? How do those come together? How do those link into shifting facts? And then when it comes to application, how do you access all of yeah. those concepts? Yeah. And I just we can do this. Oh, leave it with me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My challenge for the weekend. <laughs> because I think like that's, that's, um, it's so important. Every medical student knows that pyramid and they know, you know, they need, they need the knowledge and then they, know they need to ascend through that, those ranks to get to the analytical point. But it's about trying to marry that up to a study sort of habit and a technique where you can actually say, I'm going to do this, this, and this, and then this. And all of this together is going to get me into that pyramid. And I think that's what students, we're never really taught that. Um, you sort yeah. of left to your own devices to sort of try and figure that out. And the ones who do, they're often the ones who do better and the ones who don't uh, may struggle in some ways. And it's not because they aren't clever or they're not hardworking and studious. It's just because of this um, technique. And, and you've done a really great job of trying to explain how we can uh, all use different strategies to reach that point. And I think, yeah, if we have like something where you've got the pyramid and then you've got a study technique, that would be like a game changer for so many. Yeah. yeah. And it's the, the joke with the, once you get up to the higher levels of the pyramid, so the only level of the pyramid that's locked is just the knowledge. Mm. Everything above that will always be changing. This is why if you go back and read an essay you wrote in high school, you're going to cringe. It's going to embarrass the hell out of you. And the joke is if you write an essay today that you're proud of and you read it in 10 years, you're going to cringe. This is why, by the way, it's so hard to write books is because I'm guaranteed that in about 10 years, I'm going to read my old book and I'm going to cringe. And it's not because what I wrote is wrong. It's because my concepts have changed so much through more learning over time that I can, I can no longer even recognize my old belief patterns. And so that's what, so when it comes to the pyramid, the knowledge part on the bottom, that's binary. That's on, off, yes, no, you know it or you don't. Everything above that is constantly fluctuating. And the moment you stop continuing to jog through all of those levels is the moment probably to retire because you've locked down your story and said, this must be everything and you're going to miss something. So that's, it's, that's why it gets so tricky. It's so easy to just say, when it comes to facts, do X, Y, Z. When it comes to understanding, it's so much harder because it's, it's up here. It's no longer here. It's what are you thinking? Mm. And those thought routines come out. So yeah, leave it with, leave it with me. I'm, I'm going to start playing with those kind of ideas. I love it. Kind of like on that same vein, why is it that some things you kind of, you'll look at once and you'll just, you'll just know it. And that just becomes like kind of an implicit 
memory but then there's yeah. other things that you could go over again and again and again and that's just not sinking in is there like some crazy stuff going in your brain <laughs> <laughs> we, yay and nay we kind of know it and we don't know it so we, we tend to think it's, it's right back to that recall thing is if you see something once and you just totally get it it's likely because a somehow you're either recalling it a lot so give me a kid who's just looks like they're magically good at math yeah. chances are they're running math equations in their head when they're in the shower when they're eating lunch it's always working and the brain doesn't differentiate between your thoughts and reality so so long as you're thinking it the brain's chugging it away like you're doing it so it could be that you're just covertly activating that memory more than you are anything else Beyond that, then it could be, there's two other options is one, you have what's called a memory hijack. So memories in your brain, this is going to sound weird, but memories are tied into just giant networks. Those are your schemata. So you don't, an isolated memory in your brain doesn't, it, it's useless. It doesn't exist. It only becomes meaningful in relation to other memories. So we form these just giant association webs. This is why we always say, if you're studying facts and you're just trying to cram in facts, best of luck to you. You've got to find the story behind the facts. You got to find the link. Where do they all sit on this web? Otherwise nothing's going to happen. Once you build these big webs, you have a possibility where you can hijack a former schemata. So if you imagine I have a schemata where it's mother in the middle. And now anytime I think of mother, the 10 closest memories will automatically activate with that. And then the 10 closest memories to those will kind of echo off of that and echo off of that echo. Every once in a while, you can get a memory that just pins itself directly to a really deep memory you already have. And whether you want it to or not, now, every time I think about my mother, I have to think about that. My, the big example I have was, I must have been, I was before I left, so it was in Pittsburgh. So probably 12 years ago, a radio commercial said, we like pets. Do you like pets? Yeah, we like pets. I'm like, cool, I like pets too. <laughs> and then it said, like, look up a picture of your pet. Bring it in and you get 30% off your next purchase of blinds. Screw you. <laughs> I have a really deep schematic memory around my pet. And what they did is they got me thinking so deeply about my pet. All of those nodes were now on and resonating and open. And they said, by the way, you get 30% off blinds. I have never bought blinds in my life. I don't want to. I don't need them. Every time I think about my old dog, Petey, the first memory that pops into mind is 30% off blinds if I show a picture of <laughs> It's one of the weirder things that if you can get somebody to access a memory, or if you happen to be thinking about something that you have a deep resonance for and a new piece of information kind of sneaks its way in, that could be another reason why you make a deep memory for one thing and mm -hmm. you didn't know why, but it's just because you had so much other stuff activated that it kind of snuck in. Yeah. The other is, I think we do have a choice is the things most people don't remember they genuinely don't care about and they never try to remember. So I'm, 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 I'm going to sound horrible, but I'm just, I'm really bad with names and I know it. And I know there's a billion techniques and I know I got to use my recall. And I know if I really wanted to, I could remember everyone's name. I just don't. I remember faces, but I don't. And, and so that lack of ability to care probably hinders your ability to overtly or covertly bring that memory online. So it just probably just fades away. Mm. And so I, I would guess that most of the things you don't remember are things you genuinely don't want to remember. 
it's like uh, another one of those stupid ass equations. Not that it's hard. It's that you just don't care enough to try. <laughs> yeah. That's so accurate, isn't it? Like, and it's like when you get told as well, like older years will tell you, oh, that module is awful. That's horrible. That's really bad. And then you, you start to think, oh, I don't even want to try because it's um, like fighting a losing battle, I think. And, and when people, the worst people can tell you is, is the people who say, that one doesn't matter. Like I read a lot of fantasy novels and someone will always say like, oh, book six doesn't matter. Yeah. Damn. Because now <laughs> as soon as I activate that story, I'm just forgetting everything from book six because I just don't think it matters. When it really yeah. might, it's just, I, eh, I'm not putting in the effort and I won't remember anyway. So by the time I get to book seven, I'm like, yeah, book six didn't matter. Who cares? <laughs> Honestly, like that whole concept of being negative towards a topic is so resonant. And especially at our medical school, we have a module where it it's often not like it's a bit neglected um, because uh -oh. what older you say like, oh just do that the night before don't worry about it but it has so much importance and relevance and honestly it's um only occurred to me like right now how, how um important it is but the whole like how someone can just say something and how it can affect your attitude towards a task or an activity it's really annoying actually because I wish they didn't say that like a bit like your book like why did that person have to ruin it for you by saying oh yeah. it doesn't matter about that like, <laughs> shows the power of, of initial stories too if your first story yeah. of a thing is negative you've got to work real hard to turn that into a positive you can exactly. but if, if if you throw up on a ferris wheel you're probably <laughs> always gonna hate ferris wheels I mean yeah. you, you can get over it but you're going to really, is it worth putting in the effort? And once somebody's already started a story telling you, oh, this class sucks. Oh, you don't really need to know that information. It's real hard to prove to yourself otherwise. Yeah. You know what changes it is when you need that information. There'll yeah. be one day where everyone phones in this class. You're going to have one patient who's got this weird disease and some weird symptomology. And you're going to go, shit. <laughs> Watch in that moment. You'll know exactly where to turn. You won't remember the details, but you'll know where the details are. We're really good at, even if we don't want the facts, we're really good at still recognizing, I hated that fact. I hated that book. I know that would have been in book six. Damn it. And then you go back, you learn it, and you'll never forget it after that. Once you need it once, it'll be stuck in there. Whilst we're on the topic of finding ways to make things stick, and I know you talked about these covertly activating thoughts and then secondly, like with webs and how to sort of hang things on different sort of ideas and then trying to access those thoughts. And then thirdly, like the choice of so the story we tell ourselves and the narratives we're surrounded with and having that motivation. So like if I was a medical student, if I could tackle each one of those three things, I think, you know, any listeners and all of us would really benefit from being able to use those three concepts and then find like study techniques and changes to sort of make studying easier and help things stick. So this is where we'll bring the first part of our episode with Dr. Jared Cooney-Horvath to a close, but we will pick up the conversation uh, next week where we start to explore how emotions and the environment can affect our memories and therefore how effective our learning will be. So be sure to come back and join us next week for some more fantastic insights. If you're enjoying the podcast and enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe and leave us a review and also give us a follow on Instagram at the Hippocampus Podcast or on Twitter at 
hippocampus underscore pod. Also, if you have any thoughts on this episode or other episodes or ideas for future discussion, then please send us an email at thehippocampuspodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>